Chapter 16 of A Diamond Sky Above Titanic, a Good Omens fan fiction, written by Sea Blue Eyes, read aloud by Sky Asimaru. If you enjoy this podfic, you can check out the original story on Archive of Our Own. If you would like to hear more of my recordings or see some of my own work, you can find me through the pen and screen name of Sky Asimaru. A Diamond Sky Above Titanic Chapter 16 Forgetting Crowley slept for less than an hour. Harry Lowe woke him from a mercifully dreamless sleep waving a brilliant green flare over his head, crying something in a voice that, to the demon, was just indistinguishable, irritating noise, like an insect's hum. He didn't care enough to force the words to make sense. His eyes slid dully around the little boat, taking in Lowe's shining black boots and the green-tinted faces of the wan crewmen and the one or two other blanket-wrapped survivors pulled from the water. Letting his eyes fall shut again, he drifted back into unconsciousness. He next opened his eyes under a dawn, deep pink, blood diluted in water. Again there were voices, and this time he could discern a difference between some. Lowe's agreeable Welsh accent, Second Officer Charles Lightoller's achingly proper English. So he had survived, then. Crowley tried to attach emotions to his observations, but found he couldn't. The next time he cared to look upon the world again, there was a ship alongside them, a steamer whose brass lettering proclaimed her to be the Carpathia. So they were saved. Right. He was helped to his feet by someone. He was helped up the ship's ladder by someone. Then someone led him inside, and someone sat him down, and someone pressed a mug of weak tea in his hands. It turned out that he had been right when he told Asmodeus that people united in tragedy. Their kindness made him nauseous at times, grateful at others. Mostly, he didn't notice. Sometimes people tried to talk to him. They asked him his name, if he was hungry, if he wanted to talk. He didn't. Sometimes Harry Lowe would come in to see him, would sit by him on the floor, ask him the same meaningless questions. Crowley would answer monosyllabically. He knew Lowe would never forget what he had seen, never forget him. Mostly, though, he was left alone. Too many others were dealing with their own grief to act as counselors. Children would point at his eyes, ask their mothers what was wrong with him, and the adults would start in surprise when they saw them, hurry the youngsters away. Crowley had given his lost sunglasses some consideration, but when he had been strong enough to materialize a pair into his hands, 
and had remembered the last time he had worn them, the kind of hopes he had had, he found he was unable to settle them back on the bridge of his nose. It didn't matter how naked and exposed and inherently demonic he felt. He could not revert to his old ways like nothing had happened. So he kept his yellow snake eyes uncovered and unhidden and listened apathetically as people formed their opinions amongst themselves. The night they sailed into New York Harbor, it rained. Crowley didn't even realize he was doing it. He let the rain soak into him, drip from his hair down his face, saturate his eyebrows before running into his eyes. He stood there by himself on the deck, a solitary, impassive figure, beautiful and tragic, away from the twosomes or threesomes huddling beneath umbrellas or tugging thin blankets closer. He looked up as the Statue of Liberty sailed past, stared blankly at that equally blank face, and thought about nothing. The port was, of course, a flurry of photographers and reporters, flashing lights, raised voices, intrusive questions. Crowley pushed his way past, dissolving the film of a man who had been thoughtless enough to take his picture. He carried on walking down the dock, under a bridge, round a corner, along a lamp-lit cobbled path by the harbor. His reprieve was over, he knew. There was no use running from it. He walked with his hands in his pockets, hair disheveled across his tired, pale face, and stared expressionlessly ahead. He didn't have to wait long. Hello, Crowsley. Crowley came to a halt where he stood, spotlighted beneath the street lamp. He recognized the voice, the strange accent, the force with which each word was delivered. He turned unhurriedly around, regarded the shadowy figure in the gloom between his circle of light and the next with a vague nod. Beelzebub. Beelzebub stepped forward under the street lamp's glare so that, like a curtain being lifted, his face was brought into the light. He was in his favored humanoid form, a tall, smooth-skinned man of perhaps forty. His hair, long enough to be tied back from his face, was straight and jet black, and his eyes, too, were black beneath thin brows. He wore his indisputable authority the way a shark hunter wears necklaces of jagged teeth. He wore it like diamonds. Crosley, said Beelzebub again, his cold smile barely perceptible. It has been much too long. There was something so alarming about that voice, something that made all who heard it, demons and humans alike, 
feel a near uncontrollable urge to turn and flee whilst they still could. Perhaps it was the rasping, unpredictable accent. Perhaps it was the stress he applied to some words, but not others. He sounded like a cat playing with a mouse, letting it go, letting it believe its freedom, then striking it back with one flash of sharp claws. He tormented his audience with that voice. Crowley, however, wasn't in the mood. Beelzebub regarded him curiously at his uncharacteristic silence. Hmm. First things first, he went on. I must offer my compliments on thy tremendous success. We're all very pleased with thy work. Silence again. Crowley waited for the but. However, there have been one or two discrepancies brought to light that we feel we must set straight. He took a step forward so that he stood directly beneath the streetlight and only a foot from the other demon. Crowley felt his heart quicken in sudden instinctive fear. Tell me, Crowsley, when was the last time thou were dragged to hell? Beelzebub didn't wait for him to answer. In one quick flash, as swift and sudden and unpredictable as an attacking serpent, his hand struck out and grasped Crowley's temple, gripped it so tight Crowley felt flesh buckle beneath long, chiseled fingernails. He would have screamed at the pain, white-hot, racking every inch of his body, electrocuting it, vaporizing it. But he couldn't move. He could only shut his eyes as his physical body spontaneously combusted and passed from our dimension into somewhere else entirely, with a whirl like air sucking into the space left behind from a vacuum, which was exactly what it was. It was over in less than a second. Crowley didn't open his eyes. Rather, hell opened into his eyes. On earth, darkness comes from the simple lack of light. On earth, light is alive and reigns uncontested. In hell, light has a competitor. In hell, there is a different kind of darkness, a kind that is also alive. Like pupils dilating in shadow, Crowley watched as the passive black of his vision was slowly obscured by this living darkness, creeping like fog, darker than the darkest reach of a starless night sky. He must be deep underground, he knew, or in the farthest reach of the nether regions, for demons would drive out this abhorred darkness from their cities and fortresses with their magic. They hated and feared it, and Crowley, too, was afraid. But it was not unbearable. All demons could handle the darkness. 
The next thing he became aware of was the heat, which was somewhere in excess of 400 degrees Celsius. It sucked at his skin, boiled his blood vessels, burned his body without charring. But it, too, was not unbearable. He could handle the heat. All demons could. Knowledge of pain followed next. Very localized pain. In his wings and palms and feet. Ah, Crowley didn't need to see this to confirm it. How original of them. It was the lapping whisper of a soft stream that finally gave away his basic location. There is no water in hell. Its five rivers are composed of their namesakes. Crowley had spent more time on earth than in hell, and thus he knew little of its geography. Had he paid more attention to the Greek mythology tombs that is that he had been loaned from time to time, he would have realized which river it was that he was nailed alongside. He would have realized that he stood next to the worst one of all. The soft bubbling sounds were making him feel oddly drowsy. It was a strange feeling. Demons don't usually experience tiredness unless they want to. There was a crack like a lightning strike as Beelzebub clapped his hands together and slowly drew them apart, containing between them a tiny floating speck of enchanted dark light, which cast a feeble, colorless glow around him. From the light, Crowley discerned stalagmites, fat and fang-like, a floor shot through with veins of an indescribable, unearthly color. The river, a gray and wispy trickle of something alarmingly non-liquid. And from the darkness he discerned the immensity of the cave, the stalactite counterparts obscured, this hollow bubble inside the rock of hell. Beelzebub, one knee-high boot on the stumpy beginnings of a stalagmite, was examining his fingernails, probably picking at the skin stuck beneath them. He stretched his skinless wings lazily. So, Crowley, he said, casually continuing their conversation. I trust that thou hast heard the news. Everyone in hell is going mad for this little piece of gossip. Crowley hadn't thought he would feel afraid of hell. He had expected to take all his inevitable torture with an expressionless shrug, to even welcome the pain. He wasn't supposed to feel this scared. Play along. Give him what he wants. What gossip, he said obediently, voice lifeless. <sighs> Coward. Beelzebub looked up, brows raised, and began to walk towards him. Ay, but Crowsley, surely thou dost know. Why, so the rumours go, thou wast present at the time. 
Crowley could have moaned. He had almost forgotten. The great demon stood in front of him, stared at him coldly. Crowley realized there were flies, hundreds of fat, black flies with bodies the size of his thumbnail, crawling through his tormentor's hair. Asmodeus always was an arousing little thorn in my side, said Beelzebub, shrugging to himself. I cannot pretend to grieve for the loss of that saucy incubus. However, I must say I rather admired his work ethic, which, by the way, little Crowsley, I cannot say for thyself. Crowley recoiled in terror at the sudden fury, the frightening switch in temperament. The mercuriality brought to mind a wild animal, mean and unpredictable, incapable of mercy or reasoning, and Crowley was ashamed to realize he was cowering in fear into his burning nails, barely daring to move. Beelzebub's eyes were boring into Crowley's very soul. Calmly, he went on. But that, I am afraid, is a topic for another torture. I have much bigger fish to skin with thou, Crowsley. A pause. His eyes widened in anticipatory pleasure. Much bigger. Crowley was frozen in fear. Beelzebub went on, languidly now, all fire gone. So, as the story goes, Asmodeus was smote by the flaming hand of none other than a particular angel that thou is well acquainted with. The Lord's eyebrows rose in mock ingenuousness. Seems ever so odd, does it not, Crowsley, that an angel on a ship with not one but two demons could succeed in destroying the archdemon, and not the little demon too low in rank for even the title of imp. Beelzebub pursed his lips, feigning thought. Seems very odd to me. Crowley breathed deeply through his nose. So sharply, the sulfur and ammonia and fluorite, and Satan knew what else was there, seared his nostrils. His heart was a caged dove, pounding itself into senselessness against the walls of its prison as it fought to escape. Beelzebub was no longer half-smiling. There was no humor in his face now. No more playing. I would like for thou to tell me his name, he said shortly. A blue bottle, stark against his white forehead, ran across his skin before disappearing again. Crowley stared. 
He should have known better. He should have realized. He shouldn't have hesitated. Crowley hesitated. Beelzebub struck him across the face with a blow as strong as a swinging granite pendulum, and with the buzz of a thousand flies startled into flight. Then he struck him again, backhand. In a heartbeat, he was an inch from Crowley's face, eyes seething with flame, lips curling into a snarl from which a dozen flies escaped and poured against his face, and Crowley made to scream in terror, but instead, Aziraphale, he screamed, his name was Aziraphale. Beelzebub didn't retract his face. When he spoke, the flies in his mouth landed all over Crowley's cheeks, on his eyelids, on his lips, on his open wounds. And what didst thou do with him? Crowley found he couldn't lie. He couldn't remember how to. He could no more lie to this fiend than he could escape him. Beelzebub raised his black talons once more. I loved him! Crowley screamed, not in fear this time, but in anger. A whole chorus of Crowleys reverberated back at him from around the massive cave, all of them echoing his terrible truth, as though in support. Loved him! Loved him! Loved him! Over and over and over, Crowley's yellow eyes were livid with rage, and his forked black tongue was flickering between the sharpened points of his teeth in a frenzied, spitting hiss. I loved him, you bloody fiend! I loved him, and I still love him, and there's not a bloody thing you can do to ever stop me from loving him, because I never will! You can keep me down here for a thousand eternities, and heaven can keep him for a thousand eternities, and you can beat me and torture me and piece his modius back together to screw me into senselessness again, but you won't win. Beelzebub stared at him from beneath heavy brows. So go ahead, Bob. Give it your best shot. Do whatever you want to me. I couldn't care less. Crowley wished he could shut up now, but the words just kept pouring from him. Bring in the specialists. Bring in Lucifer. Bring in death. But do you really think that would change anything? You're out of your depth, Beelzebub. You don't have any idea what you're dealing with. You don't understand, love. You don't understand how to stop it. Beelzebub looked bored now. As a matter of fact, Crowsley... We do. Crowley stopped talking. Beelzebub turned his back to him, walked back over to the whispering stream, and bent down so that Crowley could not see what he was doing. When he turned, he held cupped between both hands a black goblet that glistened like tar.
filled to the brim with that strange, smoky, gray substance. Do you know which river this is, Crowsley? Crowley stared at the goblet. Black ooze was sliding thickly down Beelzebub's fingers. Well? The fiend raised an eyebrow. Crowley shrugged in his nails, in what he imagined was a casual, disinterested way. His limited geography yielded nothing to him. Beelzebub brought the cup beneath his nose and breathed in deeply. This is the Lethe, he said dreamily, staring deep into the gently twirling wispiness. Is thou familiar with the name? Crowley frowned. Something was coming back to him from long ago. A verse from Paradise Lost, or perhaps Dante. Some boring old poem, anyway. He tried to remember what Lethe translated to in Latin. Beelzebub went on. The Lethe is the river of forgetfulness. One sip and all thy earthly memories pass away to flow with those of the dead. That is, for humans at least. For demons it can be controlled. It can be persuaded to be a little more specific. Canst thou feel its pool already, Crosley? Canst thou hear its beguiling whispers, its yearning for thy mind? Crowley felt sick. He could feel an altogether different kind of apathy pulling at him now. The peaceful kind. The kind that comes after you have lived a long, full life and now feel ready to lay your head down, close your eyes forever, and wake up completely new. Beelzebub was smiling now, malicious razor thin. I can, he said. His eyes were bright with anticipation. And Crowley understood, realized that hell had provided the worst torture imaginable for him and his crimes with Aziraphale. They weren't going to confine him here, or maim and molest and mutilate him or even just simply kill him. No, those would be merciful. What they were going to do was remove his love for Aziraphale from his mind completely. Terror like no terror Crowley had ever felt before in his whole existence was rising in his throat to choke him. He strained against his crucifix, recoiled backwards, but of course he was trapped. And Beelzebub was walking towards him now, slowly, extending that dripping black goblet filled with oblivion out in front of him. No! said Crowley. He felt himself sinking in his bonds, losing height as his body lost the strength to hold itself. No! 
Yes, buzzed Beelzebub. Flies circled his head in his excitement. No! Crowley's head was spinning. His palms and feet and wings burned with pain as his weight fell on them and dug the adamantine further into his flesh. His head fell back, rolled against his neck. Thou shalt never recall thy relations with the angel, Beelzebub intoned, that terrible voice grave and powerful with dark magic, buzzing more ferociously than ever. He placed one hand on Crowley's forehead to force his head back, stared disgustedly down at the writhing being beneath him. Thou shalt resume thy work on the earth and continue to corrupt the souls of mankind. And if thy paths do cross again, never shalt thy friendship progress. Crowley, eyes rolled back into his head, sobbed in despair. He couldn't stop himself. He had no control over his body. Beelzebub laughed deep inside his chest, a sound that buzzed and swarmed and went on, ignoring him, as though musing out loud. Canst thou imagine thy angel's anguish upon next seeing thou on earth? Believing that the two of you will be together again, only for him to realize that thou no longer holds any love for him. Crowley wailed in torment. No! he screamed. No! Beelzebub laughed and laughed, threw his head back with it. The whole cave seemed to shake with that laughter. That awful, terrifying, infernal cackle. <laughs> now dost thou understand the true wrath of hell, Crowsley? Crowley wept and wept, his tears vaporizing before they could even form. He felt hot tar drip against his chin as the goblet was brought to his lips. He smelled burnt carbon and something strange that contradicted itself like a cloud on fire. Beelzebub pushed its rim between his lips and uttered one word as final and impenetrable as a wall of flies. Drink. To be continued in Chapter 17. Thank you for reading. Please drop by the archive and let the author know what you thought of their work.